HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you with support from Fairplate. Tickets and information at F-A-R-E-P-L-A-T-E dot com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Excited that I'll be traveling down to Charleston for the 2019 Food and Wine Festival in just a few short days. We will be recording live from the park, and you can listen to tons of amazing HRN interviews by tuning in starting on March 8th. And if you're going to be down there for the event, I'd love to meet you. So come by the park, say what's up. We're going to be in the industry tent in the back area and look for our Heritage Radio Network studio. So hope to see you if you're going to be down there. Uh, Now on to the show. My guest today is Jamie Young. He's the chef and partner of Sunday in Brooklyn. He's a 2017 Star Chef Rising Star Chef Award winner. He's previously worked at 11 Madison Park, Gray's, 10 Downing, and he was the chef de cuisine for three years at Aterra, where every year he helped the restaurant retain its Michelin stars. In 2016, he partnered with veterans from Major Food Group to open Sunday in Brooklyn, located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It's always been one of my favorite restaurant spaces in all of New York. It's very beautiful. We'll talk about the interiors of it along with the food, of course. The nearly all-day restaurant has a casual service style, and it's become a neighborhood favorite. Today, we'll be talking about learning from the best chefs in the world, how to move forward and create your own style, foraging, what it's like to both own and be the chef of a restaurant, and so much more. Jamie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So... Although our restaurants are are really nothing alike, mine is is quick service. Yours has I'm going to say it's about fifty seats ish. Way more, <laughs> seventy. I think a total. Oh, with the upstairs, seating. right? Yeah, it's like 169. Okay, so your restaurant <laughs> is huge. Mine is small. You have a, a plated style. You have full service. So they're they're nothing alike. But we are both chef owners. It comes with a unique set of challenges. So I am personally very interested in wondering. Uh, what is the most challenging part about your day in the context of you being both a chef and an owner of the restaurant, a huge restaurant? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, 
there's a few challenges I think that come with having a, a big restaurant and being the chef owner. Um, I don't nearly get to spend as much time cooking and you know running service. Uh, there's so many other aspects of the the restaurant and the business that I have to pay attention to at this point. So it's really cooking between meetings and planning um, business operations and you know trying to get ahead of the curve for the following week and kind of. Uh, you know, put out any fires I need to. Did, did you expect that? Obviously, you have a, a cooking pedigree <laughs> and you spent a long time as a CDC, which is a, a, a high leadership role in a very busy, well-known restaurant that that had, I would assume it was fully booked every single night at a tariff yeah. for the most part. So you've dealt with a lot of these things prior, but did you feel prepared or did you feel blindsided when hmm. you opened up Sunday? It's weird because every time I go to a new restaurant, it's like, uh, you're like, this is the hardest place I've ever worked. It can't get much harder than this. So everything else should be, you know, way easier. But um, come come to, you know, think about it. And like the reality of the situation is there's always a different kind of hard and challenge. So, you know, Sunday is its own difficulty and challenge, you know. So it, it's, it's vastly different in its challenges. You come from a such a intensely fine dining background. You've worked at places with multiple Michelin stars where the attention to precision is at such a high level. And now you've just mentioned that you're not in the kitchen for every single minute of every single service. You have to deal with, who knows, payroll, yeah. maybe something breaks and it's on you to call a yeah. person to fix it, right? So things are pulling you away how does that feel when you've been like food focused, plating focused, yeah. service focused, and now you, you sometimes things pull you out of the kitchen? To, I mean, to be honest with you, it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so I don't think it's something you really get used to all the time. Um, but I do have a really great team, uh, so I rely on them to you know hold, withhold the standards all the time. So um, I think that really helps having a really good management staff that you can rely on, you can trust um, to keep everything in line every day. Um, is really, really important so that I can step away and, you know, work on different projects, um, you know, work on the operation of the business and make sure it's actually producing money and it's on track. And I think that a lot of the things that I had to do in fine dining had less to do with operations. It had more to do with the standard, the excellence, the execution, um, the vision of the chef, making sure everyone was in line. Um, so it was more day-to-day, -day, hands-on in the kitchen with the staff. Um, I think with a more casual neighborhood restaurant, there are so many other variables that you know the the guest that you have is a little bit different than the guest you would get at a fine dining restaurant they're a little bit more you know casual laid back they want really you know great service but they don't want you know it to be too fussy so you have to kind of accommodate for you know almost the difference in clientele yeah i definitely want to talk about uh sunday a little bit later and just that is so interesting because the the style of where you were to where you are now some people might think well, it's just a restaurant. Like you make food, you serve food. But sure. really, uh, even just how you probably s the tables were set at Terra to how they're set at Sunday in Brooklyn, yeah. and everything else that goes beyond that yeah. is like light years different. Totally, at different. least to you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and, and people that that think about that and pay close attention. Yeah. Um, I want to go back now to Long Island to your childhood. Did you always want to open up a restaurant? How did you? get involved in the business. I know you went to culinary school, but prior to really making that decision, like where was your head at as a teenager, or as like a young kid? Yeah, it's weird because I'm not hundred percent sure where this came from. I know like when I was like 12 or 13, I wanted to do it like without even 
thinking about anything else I ever want to do. I just want to do this. And my mom's like, well, you never cook at home, so I don't understand why you would want to do this. Like, where does this interest come from? And I was like, I really don't know. I just want to do it. Um, and I think maybe like, you know, I used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother. She cooked a lot. My mom's mother cooked a ton. Um, it's like in the family. My mom cooked for us all the time. Um, I used to spend a lot of afternoons with my grandmother watching Julia Childs. And I think maybe falling asleep unconsciously, she got in my head. And that's kind of where it came from. Um, but besides that, I'm not really sure why, to be honest with you. But um, while I was in high school, I just took, um, I took a job as like a... You know, like a deli counter guy at this, um, like Italian pork store. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of my classic Long Island. Totally. Yeah. So Freddie was my boss. He was pretty amazing. And he's always like butchering meat, making sausages and things like that. And I was, you know, making fresh mozzarella. And I'm like slicing deli meat super thin for everyone because everyone's like really particular in Long Island about really, really thin meat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That was like kind of my first taste of like hands on like food you know, kind of, uh, experience. And then I went to work with this, um, this one restaurant as a bus boy. Um, it was a pretty good restaurant. It was, uh, it was like an Italian American, um, pretty progressive at the time. I think, you know, it was like 2004 or something like that. So it was a really good restaurant in, in Long Island, you know, which is, you know, kind of rare. Yeah. <laughs> um, I learned a lot about the kitchen. Like there was just one chef and a sous chef and it was just two guys cooking for like 50 people and they had their, you know, all their sauces and bain marie's and they were just like cooking so fast and i was like wow this is so cool like it looks so fun i was i was like really enthralled at that point so at that at that moment i decided i was for sure going to go to culinary school um i really wasn't sure what that meant to be honest with you so you know my mom did a ton of research for me and uh she's like all right we're either going to do cia or johnson wales are the best schools i'm like okay um so we went to johnson wales and uh you know we went to the campus i had no idea like how I would decide if one was better than the other, to be honest with you, I just didn't know. Uh, so I kind of just rolled the dice on it and uh, I went and you know, I did four years there. My mom's like, you need a bachelor's degree. And I was like, all right, cool, let's just, you know, we'll do that. And um, I spent four years there, but um, for me it was super important to actually get real line experience because I, I just didn't get any there. It was, you know, 30 kids in a class, you do like one dish for seven hours and I'm like, this is not doing it, you know? I just, I really didn't like it, to be honest with you. I didn't think it was really preparing me for what I really needed to know. So. I had this like fear that I wasn't gonna be ready to go for when I came back to New York because I, I had this you know everyone has this big idea of what New York cooking is and how scary it must be you know and I just wanted to make sure that I can walk into the kitchen anywhere in New York and at least hit the ground running in some respect. Sure. So I went to work for this one one guy in uh, on Federal Hill in Rhode Island. His name was Walter Pretenza. It was just like an Italian restaurant, but he was super particular about how clean. Uh, we cooked, we, we worked changing containers, scrubbing the grout and the floors. Like he was so particular and like, I really learned quite a lot in that moment on how to cook and how to like really organize myself and stay really clean, how important that was and the joy of organization and cleanliness. Right. Yeah. Um, because that is like, you know, 50 or more percent of cooking is cleaning and organizing. Um, yeah, just generally the preparation is a lot of what you hear from, like the juxtaposition of like your my first job to I got a real professional job is like upping the ante on how well you're prepared for service, right? right? Like right. just having your mise en place in place. And a lot of first jobs, they don't even call it mise en place. They're just like have your uh, you know little boxes of sure. stuff ready. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, like you yeah. don't even know what that word is at that time. <laughs> so you start working uh, in, in Rhode Island and he's teaching you all of these 
you know, techniques you're learning, I assume, how to cook meat and fish and things that you maybe saw in culinary school but hadn't quite put in into action yet? Like, is yeah, this I mean, your first real, this is your first I'm on the line during service? Like, pr- real pressure. Yeah. Like, you get in, you have to prep, and then people are sitting down, so you need to be ready, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, for sure. Definitely felt pressure for, I mean, even in school, like, I didn't touch a fish the entire four years I was there. And I was, like, freaking out. I was like, well, if I can't butcher fish or do any of that, like... You know, for me, that's like a hole in my game. I need to fill that hole somehow. Yeah. So. And as someone who didn't go to culinary school, I'm always curious. The now culinary school has has become sort of, it's become very expensive. Yeah. And it has become really just almost a direct pipeline into fine dining. It is quite rare. I think that people go to four years of culinary school and then, uh, and then don't try to go somewhere with a Michelin star. Like, is that what you found when you were there or was it a different vibe? To be honest with you, like, I, I, you know, Johnson and Wells, they had this thing where they guaranteed you like placement, 90%, 95%, whatever, but they were mostly sponsored by like Marriott hotel. So of course, you can get easily that's how placed. They place ninety five percent of people. You know, yeah. If you want to work in a hotel, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know, I just wanted something more particular. I wanted more. I wanted to be. I wanted to cook with the best of them. That's what I wanted. You yeah. know. If I was gonna put all those hours in, my mom's always like, you know, you realize, you know, you're not gonna have your weekends. You're gonna be working long hours. She was like trying to deter me for a minute, let sure. me know, warn me, and I was like, all right, well, I don't really care. But if I was going to do that and was gonna make that sacrifice, I wanted it to be. With the best of them. I wanted to be one of the best, you know? She was being your mom. She was trying to prepare was, you yeah. for the fact that uh, you've chosen a profession that kind of sucks and is and is yeah. incredibly demanding. Yeah. And you don't get to clock out at 5.30 and say, today was a hard day. You got to stay until true. the end of the it's very true. end of that hard day. It's true. So how do you end up at EMP? What's the next stage step in this uh, in this? postgraduate so I'm, I'm nearing my end i have a few months left um and you there's like career counselors they're like well i can place you here i can place you there and to be honest with you they they, they didn't really follow through with a lot of what they had promised so i went and did it on my own so um you know i found out about Led madison park um it was a restaurant you know with carrie heffernan beforehand it was a big beautiful restaurant i found out that daniel Hume was coming i didn't to be honest with you know much about him so um, I immediately just started Google searching and like looking, looking him up, you know, looking up what he did at Campton Place, reading his menu at 11 Madison Park. I didn't even know what some of the ingredients in the menu items were because a lot of, a lot of it was like kind of French techniques and like things I hadn't been exposed to. So I was like, my God, I gotta go. So I sent an email and I was like, they're never going to get back to me. Right. So, um, the exec sue or a CDC at the time, Jason Franny, um, he got back to me like the next day and I, I think I freaked out. I was like, holy shit, like, <laughs> I can't believe they got back to me. So he was like, yeah, when can you come and stash? I was like, I'm not really sure what that word means. <laughs> so he's like, all right, well, come down and trail for a couple days, see what you think. So I drove down from Rhode Island, it's like four and a half hours. I get there, I'm like at my mom's house getting all my, my knives. I didn't even have any good knives, I just had shitty knives. I didn't even know <laughs> like what I needed, you know? Because I'd never been on a, a real serious New York trail before, especially mm-hmm. in a kitchen that big. Sure. And um, I, I threw up outside at, at the park right before I walked in because <laughs> I had, you know, I was like, it was so intimidating. And you get in there and like you see people in tokes just running, like everyone is running. And, you know, it's like it's he like just the- got there. So like everything is changing. So everyone's freaking out. Everyone's running around. And I see Daniel standing at the pass. You know, he's like looking at the tickets. He's like talking to people. And then he looks over to me and he, he puts his hand out and, and he goes, hi, I'm Daniel. And he shook my hand. And I was like, 
holy shit. Like, <laughs> he shook my hand. Like, that's pretty cool. Um, so I got there. I thought I knew something about cooking. And, you know, it turns out I really didn't know shit. <laughs> so it's sort of like the Knicks asked you to come. They're like, just come and shoot a couple jump shots. Yeah. And we'll see if we can, you know, put you on the squad. So you get there and uh, you do, what, a one-day stage? Yeah. They, they're like, hey, listen, come back. I was like, okay, cool. Um, just want to let you know I'm finishing up school so I can only do weekends right now. And when I'm done, I'll just go. So I was basically going back and forth from Rhode Island uh, to finishing class and going to work on the weekends, you know, working like 16 or 18 hours back to back. And like I was living basically at my mom's house, which is an hour outside. So I had to take the Long Island Railroad in. And then I had to try to get the last train out without saying, hey, chef, like my last train's coming. Can I go now? Because you can't say that, sure. right? So I'm like, anything else you need? And I would just do everything super fast, you know? And they were like, wow, he takes initiative. I'm like, great. <laughs> and then I would sprint from 11 Madison Park all the way to Penn Station to make the last train. Because otherwise, I'd have to wait an hour to sit on the train for an hour and then be back in the morning. Um, and then I would drive back to Rhode Island, finish up. And then, as a matter of fact, my first real day at EMP was actually graduation day. And I missed my graduation because I didn't really care about that. For me, the most important thing was working there. I didn't want anyone to take my job. So I got there and I was like... I'm fucking here. Like, I don't care about graduation. That was bullshit anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? So when, when you started there, was there, did people feel that it was different? Did you, you hadn't been in a New York kitchen yet, yeah. but was there an energy that people were kind of whispering? Was there percolating there that, that things there would maybe grow into what it now is? Or, or, or do you think I mean, it was still the, too young in its infancy with no Daniel re- Hum at the beginning? Because at the time when I was working there, if you said EMP to anyone, they were like, what? They mm-hmm. had no idea. Right. And I was like, oh, cool. It's like magic. Like, we're going to, you're going to know this name soon enough, you know? Um, to be honest with you, like the, the attention to detail, the food we were doing, it was beautiful. Like the flavors were amazing. The cooking was awesome. Like the dishes were, you know, something I've never really been exposed to before. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when I um, I finally got to the hotline for lunch, I had to make 12 foam sauces, you know? Like, by the time I was done tasting them, I had pretty much drank a gallon of cream at that point. You know what I mean? Between chef tasting it, Jason tasting it, the sous chef tasting it, readjusting. Like, you know, it was it was on its way. You, for sure, you knew it was, it was definitely going to be one of the best restaurants in the city. What are some things that you learned from that kitchen that you now lean on? Now that you're in a leadership role, it could be something that specifically you saw one of the Sue's or even Chef Hum do that uh, you've carried with you until then. There's a couple of actually EMP was a turning point in my career, even though I was pretty young. I think every chef is tested to some degree and to the point where they're like, should I do this? Am I good enough to do this? Should I quit? Um, And that place for sure drove me to that point. Um, and once you hit that breaking point, you make a decision, right? Um, and I remember I had a really rough service and Daniel came in and he was like really pissed off and I felt really terrible, you know, I didn't want to like take down the service. I like, you know, it was important to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then after service was like, chef, you know, maybe I'm just not good enough. Maybe I should spend time in the private dining with one sous chef and you know, maybe I just need to learn more. Maybe I'm just not ready for this. And the next day he threw me on entremet for dinner service and I like, it clicked. All of a sudden, I, I did it. I could do it. And from then on, he just kept giving me the opportunity to keep moving through the line. And before you knew it, I went from, I think I'm terrible at this, to, you know, torn out of the kitchen. And that was, for me, the most 
important moment in my career where I realized I can do anything I, I want. I can do whatever I, you know, if I can do this, I can do anything. I can, I can aspire for more. And that was the most important thing I think a chef's really ever done for me, um, especially young in my career. And then obviously I think it, the most important thing is, you know, to look at the, the lead cook in the kitchen and, and aspire to be that person when you're the younger cook because they're working their ass off. They're usually the best cooks. You know, their tricks, the way they cook, you know, like your meat cook and your fish cook have different ways of like staying ahead in service and how they actually cook fish in a quick, in a quick moment. Like you can learn so many tricks and cooking techniques from those guys because they're the craftiest and they're the quickest, you know. So um, it's almost magical as a young cook to watch these guys um, do their thing. Did you ever go to Chef Hum either before you left or since and and make any reference to that moment and say something <laughs> along the lines of, thanks for throwing me into the fire? You know, has he ever referenced the fact that I he didn't. kind of believed in you? Because that, that moment could have gone in a totally yeah. different way. He could have thought yeah. to himself, you know what, maybe I should pull it back a little bit but he actually like he, he stepped on the gas stepped on the gas yeah. he he said like oh you don't think you can make it here like let let me push you into the absolute yeah. limit of what your capabilities could potentially you know, I be. never I never talked to him about it um I'm sure he does that for a lot of his cooks I mean mm -hmm. you know that's just his personality I think um for me I was there for like a little over a year um I was working a ton of hours I was commuting it was killing me um, and we were doing this changeover from the old kitchen to the new one. So we had this issue where cooks were walking out left and right. They didn't want to do it. It was too hard. So there was a, a small group of us that were just like trying to fill in and, and fill in the gap. So it really kind of like wore me down. So I had to, I had to give my notice and he's like, you shouldn't do that. And you know, he was for sure. Right. I probably, I should have taken a break and maybe came back for sure. I thought about it. Um, I was just really young at that point. So I, in hindsight, I probably should have went back. Um, but there was this one moment he came, he used to come to Atera like a couple times a year and there was this one moment he came in and um, uh, I was, I, I had been promoted to CDC. I was there, I was like running the kitchen for like at least six or seven months and you know, um, he looked over at me and he's like, come here. And I was like, all right, what's up chef? And he goes, he's like, I just wanna let you know I'm really proud of you and he shook my hand. And I was like, that was, for me that was the most satisfying. Like the approval from him, someone that like kind of pushed me in the right direction to see where I'm at and give me that kind of approval. It was super important. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to chat more about Atera. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio. This episode is brought to you with support from Fairplate, a taste of Ireland in New York, taking place Saturday, March 9th at the Rag Trader. At Fairplate, you can sip and savor Irish whiskey, cheese, grass-fed beef, and more. Tickets and information at F-A-R-E-P-L-A-T-E.com. Hey, are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Kathy Irway, and I'm the host of Eat Your Words here on HRN. Every week I sit down with food writers to talk about their newest work, from colorful cookbooks to food memoirs to exposés on the food industry. It's all meaty topic for discussion. You can find Eat Your Words wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. 
Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Chef Jamie Young. He is the uh, chef and co-owner of Sunday in Brooklyn. Before the break, we were talking about your first job, a very influential uh, way to start your career, which (laughs) is uh, you jumped on The Line at EMP. But really, it was one of your next stops that uh, had a huge amount of... uh, of, of influence in shaping the way that you think about food. And yeah. that was at Atera working with chef Matthew Leitner. Can you please tell us a little bit about that job and working uh, underneath and then alongside him, please? Yeah. Um, so that was one of those new moments where I was scared shitless. I, I never traveled to Spain. I knew that like he was like really deep into like Mugaritz and the style and this like really creative you know, molecular idea and like, you know, also spending, he spent some time at Noma and like, there's a lot of progressive ideas that he was working on that I was, I really just really wanted to get into that. You know, I went from kind of fine dining French cuisine, worked for Grey Coons, did a little bit of like, um, you know, kind of rustic French cooking with Tony Maas in Cambridge. I learned a lot from him. And, and then at this point I just, I wanted to, to learn modern style. Um, so we started in the owner's basement in her house. Um, again, I've had no, experience with, you know, like, uh, hydrocolloids, things like that. I didn't really know much about it. So I was a, a bit of a disadvantage, but I knew I was a really good cook. I knew I could handle myself in any situation. So, you know, I get there, he's super quiet. He doesn't really say anything. He just rattles off a list of things to work on. I'm just like, I don't get it. He doesn't say hello. How do I know if like he hates me or he likes me? Um, so it was like, it was, it was like intense. Like it was so intense. Um, and I was like, cool, I can't wait to keep going with this. So, um, we did a ton of R and D out of that kitchen, uh, this like normal basement kitchen for about three or four months, I believe. And then we finally got into the production kitchen, um, at Atera, which was this big, beautiful, you know, almost laboratory, if you will, like ton of space, everything you ever wanted in a kitchen, like hyper clean. And Matt's like a stickler for perfection and cleanliness. So we deep clean that kitchen like five times a day. So it was like, it was like something I've never experienced, (laughs) but you know what it like, he always said like, we would get in the morning. He's like, all right, let's clean. And I'm just looking around. I'm like, we cleaned before we left. I'm like, I was super confused, but he explained it to me. And I was like, he's like, listen, it just sets the tone. Like we clean vigorously. We wipe down the kitchen. We start fresh. It clears the mind. And I'm like, great. So we started getting into this rhythm where we would, we had this like cleaning schedule and it would reset us every time. And we would you know, clean up what we were doing and then we'd start fresh. And you know what? It really did clear, clear our minds up quite a bit. I mean, it was an interesting kind of approach that I'd never really thought about before. I totally see what you're saying. You know, sometimes you can get into this, you tend to spread out where you're like, oh, there's three projects, yeah. four projects going yeah. at the same time. And then you realize that everything's working, but you're not really quite focusing on right. any of them with the level of detail right. that you want and obviously what he's expecting for sure which is which so we is would do one project precision. at a time yeah that's that was it so the way that that menu was constructed for people that have never been there and aren't familiar with it can you talk a little bit about how sourcing of ingredients and also technique what they are are they traditional what a Terra kind of does oh that's from Nebraska so he has this like this deep-seated like love for Midwestern like ideas, but at the same time he's traveled the world and he spent a lot of times at some like really amazing kitchens. For instance, he spent a lot of time in Mugaritz and like he's been exposed to so many ingredients um, and so many ideas and techniques. So a lot of that was kind of infused. And I would say towards the end of his tenure there, we were starting to kind of really dive into like that love that he had of kind of Midwestern ideas. Um, 
but I mean, in the beginning, it was mostly a lot of these like kind of modern progressive ideas coming out of like, you know, like Europe and, and Spain that was kind of still fresh in his mind. So we were doing a lot of those things that were, I guess, trendy at the moment. How was the restaurant received at the beginning? To be honest with you, we were working like crazy. Um, and we had a small core team. They're all my family. Like I, I speak to every one of them every day. It was like the tightest team I've ever been, I've ever worked with. And you know, like that one job that you had that you like, you know, the lead cook, this guy, the sous chef, like we were just so tight because we were in it together. We mm -hmm. were trying to achieve something that I don't think was really happening at the time. And, and Matt's ideas were so progressive in a way that I didn't even understand how to, to like, even like start working on some of those ideas. He had to give us a, like a lot of direction and, you know, it was amazing to kind of see something I thought was impossible just happen and become something that's every day to us. Um, so, I mean, it was incredible to be honest with you. How did, uh, how did you end up being in charge of the kitchen there? Did, did Matt leave? Did he promote you to CDC no, while Matt, he was still there? How, what was the, what was the trajectory for you within Atera since you spent quite a bit of time there? Yeah, about five years. So I started off as, you know, their, their protein cook, the meat cook. Um, I did all the fish and the meat butchery and everything that ha happened to do with sauces and meat for the most part and fish. Um, we had an amazing, um, executive sous chef. Her name was Victoria Blamey. She was an unbelievable technician. Um, her palate was insane. Her leadership was intense. Um, and she really set the tone for the kitchen, um, which was pretty amazing. Her and Matt worked really well together. I think they've worked previously at Mugaritz a long time ago. That's how they knew each other. But, um, it was a pretty intense dynamic. Um, and then, um, they had offer myself and my, my, one of my brothers, uh, Zach Hunter, who's now in Austin at the Brewers table, um, to be promoted as sous chefs. And we were just like, okay, like, she's like, if you do this, it's like a year commitment. And I was already like, okay, do I want to, you know, do you, you always start to question, like, it's been a, a really tough year. We had no idea what was going on. We had no idea how we were being perceived. Um, we had everyone coming in. You know, I remember some of the chefs that I've always dreamed of cooking for were coming in, sitting at the counter, like right in front of me. It was, it was like intense, like it was amazing. Um, and then um, she decided to, to move on. And then um, it was just Zach and I, and then we were kind of doing it for a while. And then um, he decided to move on. And then I was basically doing everything as a sous chef, like ordering everything and, and trying to manage everything. Um, and then he just promoted me from there. Um, I kind of just assumed the role um, as everyone started to kind of do their own thing. Did you end up having at that time any, a lot control over things that went on the menu? Were you still executing really uh, Matt's vision? What, I'm curious if you can even determine like percentage wise, what type of ideas were you throwing out there that were really sticking on the menu? Um, not a ton, to be honest with you. Matt had so many ideas all the time that he wanted to get out there. Our menu was gigantic. Like it was a lot, you mm -hmm. know? And he had just so many ideas at the time that we just had to keep working on them. Like he'd come in and I'd, we had this like library place and it had like this clear board. And before you knew it, there was 15 new things on there. And you're like, okay, how do I make a beet, you know, taste like that? He, like he would take vegetables with a uh, texture and, and he would, he would say, all right, we're going to make this texture of this, this vegetable. And I'm like, I'm not sure. How do we do that? You know? So there was like a lot of interesting exploration that we had to do all the time. So we're really always working on, on his ideas of what things could be. So we were always kind of like, um, I guess you could say experimenting nonstop. 
Um, I always took control of all of the dietaries, the, the vegetarian menus, the dairy-free things. So I got to explore a lot with that. So um, that's where he let me kind of kind of take the role and the reins on the food. And I would um, I would be basically with the sous chefs always R&Ding these new ideas that he was coming up with nonstop. You definitely have um, – you've spoken before about you, you enjoy foraging. You are someone who really enjoys digging deep into sourcing, yeah. uh, locality – sustainability, just getting to the actual core root of what the product is, where it came from. Yeah. Is that something that you had before that was then magnified, emphasized by what happened at Atera? Or is that something that you didn't actually quite think about that much before you got to Atera and then, and then it happened there? Well, I mean, for sure, when I worked for Tony Maws, like the quality of the ingredients was the utmost importance. He had like 50 different farm purveyors. Like he got his meat from a specific place. He was like calling, you know, brown trading at like four in the morning to make sure that Rod was telling him what was the freshest fish. Like we were getting fish in rigor mortis nonstop. Like I couldn't even butcher the fish because I had to wait like two days for it to like relax, you know? Um, so I kind of like, I really got the jump off from Tony. And as I went to Matt, I didn't really know a ton of forage about foraging. I just, you know, you read about it, no one's doing a whole thing and like everyone starts foraging and you get all these really rare, awesome ingredients that are in the moment. And, um, we had a forager at a terror and they kept bringing in all these new ingredients and it was just blowing my mind, all these different flavor profiles, textures and things that we can actually have in different parts of the season. So it really kind of blossomed at a terror. And then, um, I became really close with, uh, a good friend of mine named Will Horowitz, he has Ducks Eatery over in the village. Um, he takes me all the time and teaches me a lot. So we always go to his spots. He he shows me all all the different things and like what to look for. Like when we're looking for the elusive morel mushroom, like what kind of trees we're looking for to find them. And you know, Will has taught me quite a lot on my own to how to actually go and find the right things. Um, so it's like kind of a combination of people. What's really fascinating for me about the next step in your career is that if I were to have to have put money down, <laughs> I'd say, oh, yeah, Jamie's going to get a 14-seat small basement joint, and he's going to do a very sleek tasting menu. That was the idea. It, I did, was, it didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. So, <laughs> uh, so if that was the idea, and now you're at a 100-some-seat restaurant, which is almost an all-day spot. You do yeah. breakfast. You do a midday. You do dinner. Uh Plating's still beautiful. It's still sourced very responsibly, but it's a casual restaurant. Yeah. Uh, how did all that happen? So um, Matt had left the Terra. Um, we welcomed in Ronnie Emborg, fantastic chef. Um, I, I knew I had to kind of go out on my own and start doing my own thing. So after everything was kind of settled, we parted ways. Um, and then serendipitously, I ran into my business partner, Adam Landsman, at the market I was just there at the market. One of my good friends was, you know, selling produce for a farm and we were hanging out and I'm like, oh my God, Adam, what's going on? I haven't seen him in like 10 years. You know, we worked together at Gray's for Gray Coons in Midtown. And then he's like, I don't know, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing right now. Like, he's like, what? I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you know, we're working on a restaurant. Let's have a drink. I'm like, okay. So we had a beer. Um, I had at that point, um, my friend Scott, who has charter uh, coffee somewhere in um, Williamsburg, he was our sommelier at uh, at Atera for a long time, and he's like, "Hey, I have these investors; they want to do something. Would you be interested?" I was like, "Cool." So this was like, "Yes, I'm gonna get my like my fine dining thing. I'm gonna transition right into it, and I'm gonna figure this out. It's gonna be awesome, right?" Um, 
turns out it was just taking too long. I couldn't really afford to wait much longer. And Adam's like, hey, listen, why don't you do some R&D for the for this restaurant concept me and my business partner Todd have going and we'll just pay you and then you can just, you know, train someone and then that's it. You know, you get paid and you can work on things while you're waiting on your project and you can help us with ours. So I was like, sure, no problem. So I started R&Ding full time out of my apartment for Sunday in Brooklyn and um, it was super interesting. Um, I would do tastings for them like weekly out of my apartment and um, again, like waiting and waiting, waiting for this thing to happen. It's not happening. And he's like, he, you know, Adam's like a very reasonable person. He's like, you know, listen, like, come on as a full partner with us, let's do this. And then I'll help you find a space and we'll, we'll get you the investment for that. So, you know, taking a, a page out of like David Chang's book, right? Like doing a really great restaurant that services the, the local neighborhood. You know, it's a great business. It makes good money. It's, it's sustainable and supportable, you know, financially. And the reality is, you know, fine dining and things like that. It's just not sustainable financially. So unless you have a backer that has a, ton of money like it's 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 tricky it's mm -hmm. really tricky the margins are so slim with food like you have to be careful so you know i i started i started to grow up a little bit i'm like you know what like i think and you know through adam and todd they're like very operations heavy and super smart you know like you know we need to make something stable and financially viable for all of us before you know we can do anything like that and you know it made a ton of sense to me and you know at the same time like feeding the neighborhood is not a bad thing it's great to feed everyone every day the two partners that you've just mentioned, Todd and Adam, so they were respectively the COO and director of operations yep. within Major Food Group. Yep. So they obviously have a ton of uh, experience on their end. You've got a, a wonderful resume that you're bringing in. On paper, it seems like you guys find the investors, you find the finances to yep. do Sunday in Brooklyn in like two minutes. Everybody says this is the <laughs> this is the, this is the dream team. This is a three-headed monster. Yeah, is that a correct assessment? Was yeah. it easy to fundraise? Was it difficult to fundraise? Well, how how did that process work out for you guys? So Adam, so just like the three-headed monster, like so I, I I'm like I'm good at the food part, building my kitchen team, all that. That's what I do. Todd is like super strategic operations, like hyper intelligent. He managed uh, a bunch of restaurants in the Cheesecake Factory for 13 years. And there was an article about how if our, our hospitals, you know, operated like Cheesecake Factory did, there'd be no sick people in this country. Like, you know, their waste is like 0.5%, like everything's made in house. And like when I found all these details out, my head exploded. I was like, wow, this whole time I thought Cheesecake Factory was this thing, but it's really actually not. It's actually not bad for whatever it's doing. Um, so Todd is, that operations guy in Adam, he's the go-getter. He's he negotiates, he finds people, he's he socializes, he knows, you know, basically everyone from just working at all these different establishments. People are like, hey, when you open a restaurant, I'd love to invest in you. So he had he had quite a bit of people to call to to see um, how that would work out. And he gathered a bunch of people and they all agreed to it. And you know, we had our we had majority of our investors locked in. Uh, I can tell you you know, from just watching how stressed out he was about it. Like fundraising is not easy. You know, when someone says they're in, that's something different than here's the check, right? So like, totally. you know, it's hard. It's super hard. When you formalized your relationship with them and you all kind of decided what your roles would be in the context of the restaurant and you launched to open it, was there any discussion, any stress, strain at all about what the overall vision would be? Or were you all super on the same page about it being like a neighborhood joint first and foremost? 
the neighborhood joint idea for sure because we all live in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It was important to us to give a, a restaurant to the neighborhood that people can come to all the time and really enjoy without, um, you know, just carefree. It's awesome. You know, um, that was important to us first and foremost. Um, the vision, however, changed quite a bit. Um, mostly because in the beginning we were in a space that we had to change into, right? So like, you know, the idea of something in Brooklyn um, for Adam and Todd before kind of I came into the picture was something else. And then, you know, when we get into the space, it's a little more challenging. It doesn't quite fit the idea. So we start pivoting to make it function within the space because the space in itself, although, excuse me, very big, um, it's a challenging space. It's three floors. Like it looks like there's a lot of space, but it's kind of like all the spaces are in like these random crevices and like it's a little bit tight. And um, so we kept pivoting a for the functionality of the restaurant and B, you know, we, we were listening to what the neighborhood really wanted. And like what I was cooking for dinner um, originally was, you know, I think a little bit too futzy. Um, and for me it wasn't, but coming from where I was at, like that's where my head was at. So mm-hmm. um, I really started to kind of, you know, shed some of the useless things that I was doing that really didn't make sense for that restaurant, that, that, that concept. Um, and we were just kind of looking towards the neighborhood and seeing what they really wanted to eat every day. Um, and just constantly reviewing the menus and pivoting and brainstorming how to, you know, be more accessible, Mm -hmm. which was the point. Do you ever wake up in the morning and say to yourself, I really wish that I could source X from this location, put it on the menu and charge X amount every of dollars day. for it every day, and the restaurant doesn't possible. allow it. It's not possible. Um, the reality is, um, there's a, a lot of amazing farmers out there. There's a lot of amazing ingredients out there, but I think, um, I think that the the public is not quite educated enough to understand the the real cost yes. of an ingredient, how much it costs a farmer to actually produce that ingredient, and then when we get it, and then we produce it and put labor into it, how much at the end of the day it really does cost to put on the plate in a way that makes not us greedy in any way, but financially viable to sell it to someone in a way that like makes sense for both of us. Um, so it's been really challenging and I have to be really picky about which ingredients we can use because, you know, as a neighborhood restaurant, I can't charge, you know, more than 14 or $15 for an appetizer. It's just not, it's not doable. So yeah, food costs are still, it's insane. They still are the lurking monster at all times. Yeah. Now labor. Totally. Let's talk a little bit about labor and also food costs and rent (laughs) in New York and the extreme challenges that exist. Uh, I think some people that might be listening right now, they've walked by Sunday and they see that like you're slammed and they think that maybe you guys don't have a care in the world and that like you're, you're, you're in the clouds above the fray. I want you to shed some light on like (laughs) what happens at, a busy restaurant in New York, and I guess we've just learned that you're not immune to these challenges that that restaurants face. Sure. How do you and the rest of your team, Todd, Adam, your other managers, yeah. how do you approach these things on a weekly or monthly basis? Like, get really get really detailed for me from like a, an owner operator perspective. Yeah. Like, how do these things affect you at a busy place? For sure. Um, <sighs> depending on season, obviously. Um, as we ramp up for the warmer seasons, we can get outdoor seating. Our project, we, we project basically what our revenue goals are for a week, for the month, and then we see what the year might look like. So every week we're constantly looking at what we might make that week based on uh, our history of that year. So we only have two and a half years in, so we're, we're, 
we're looking back previous year to see kind of like where we were at there and then how far up percentage-wise we are for the year in, in some sort of like trajectory idea. Um, then we'll start to base um, what we might make um, as our total, and then we'll start looking at what we can spend for labor, like what we can actually spend. So it's like I have a certain amount of hours and a certain amount of shifts that I can give away to cooks and, ma- and the management's different because they're salary, but mm. to, to line labor, right? So at that point, depending on where you're at in the season, there's only so many hours I can give away because once you start hitting overtime for multiple people on your line level staff plus spread of hours, you know, before you know it, you've lost $25,000 that month. But we're busy, right? We're making money. It's not that. Right. Before you know it, labor costs and food costs will wipe all that out. Before Spirals you know it. very quick. It can spiral very quickly. Like, we're talking weeks. Like yeah. It's not even like two, three months. It's like two, three weeks of having bad, bad percentages. That's. I think what you've just illuminated is one of the things that I actually was totally unprepared for when we launched our own business, which was like, Same. I didn't realize that daily, yeah. weekly, how cl- close attention you have to pay to every single aspect of every line item yeah. on your master pay attention to list. We have a daily, <laughs> we have a daily column with our managers about labor and food costs every day. Yeah. That's, that's <clears throat> unbelievable. That's definitely something that I think people would be surprised to hear yeah. that like you're, you're keeping such a close eye on it, especially in the New York city environment where people can be fickle. Mm weather can crush a week for you and then you end up looking you you think to yourself oh well like maybe march will be better than february and you're like well actually february we really need to batten the hatches down or or whatever it might be to kind of weather literally weather the storm yeah um what other types of if any you guys are two and a half years in what kind of revenue streams have you guys thought up looked at beyond the traditional uh you do breakfast you do brunch and you do like a midday into into dinner dinner, any thoughts on like are you guys ever gonna go full-on lunch is there a discussion of like uh i don't know do you do private buyouts upstairs like what kinds of other things have you guys as business people look to that might not be super exciting from the chef perspective but you as a business owner yeah. you're like all right we got to do it events man events yeah. are a huge part of our revenue stream um you know to go and delivery was always a part of the model um we were just trying to figure out the best way to put that out there and you know what i mean as far as like what is to go and what our packaging looks like um the value you get in that to go menu, you know, I think it's a big thing. Um, so doing, doing to go and delivery does, does help. If you make a, a couple hundred dollars here and there, by the end of the week, you have a couple thousand in the bank that, you know, you're paying for someone's salary right there. So it kind of, it gives you a little bit more wiggle room. Totally. Um, events for sure. Um, events are like, you know, everyone in the industry knows it's easy money, like past hors d'oeuvres for an hour, cost this open bar, all that, all the add on things before you know it, like it's, a majority of our revenue source is, is events. And, you know, we have a challenging tiny space, so we can't do the bigger events, which we get inquiries all the time for, it's just we can't. Um, but the events, we do do a ton of events, and it's, like, super important, super important. Do they drive you crazy, or have you learned to In the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, <laughs> yes. But, like, you know, we developed a menu that was super easy to execute. Um, you know, instead of doing plated for, like, 50 people, we do family style, and people love that. It makes it more casual. Um, 
makes it easier for people to kind of just mingle with each other and eat. And that's the whole point of those events anyways. Like you want people to communicate with each other, not stare down at their plates. So they have to, they're almost forced to talk to each other as they're grabbing food for each other. So um, family style definitely helps out and makes the service super easy. So we can do normal service on the first floor and then we can do a buyout event on the second floor, just family style. And everyone's usually happy on both ends. It seems like over time as you've sort of solidified your role there and you, yeah. you realize that you you're part of it and that you weren't just consulting that yep. you did a lot of internal uh, growth on what yeah. on what the like the optics of your food could potentially be sure. not to put words in your mouth no, but sure. something along those lines uh, is there any internal struggle left thoughts about doing a tasting menu at every the day. counter all day long every day uh, are you are you ever thinking to yourself Sunday in Brooklyn either in its current incarnation or it with a tweak could be should be a Michelin star restaurant and are you looking to achieve that not at Sunday in Brooklyn no I, don't, I think for us we're more focused on attending to the our neighborhood and our guests there we want it to be as approachable as possible um, for me you know the future is still I want to do something elevated I just need to express myself. I want to see how far I can go and push myself. And that's always been important to me. Um, you know, just watching Matt kind of do things that blew my mind. I want to, I want to, I want to achieve that. Like he inspires me to want to achieve that. Um, so the difference is I don't want to do a tasting menu. The difference is I don't want a chef's counter. I don't want to do a tasting menu. I'm just tired of it. It's like a monotonous ongoing thing. And like you get tired of it after a while. And I'm just, I'm trying to conceptualize and think about a different way to do that. That's more, more fun, less um, predictable. Um, I'm not sure what that is yet, and I've been thinking about it for a long time. But you know, I've been looking for spaces for that, you know, for the foreseeable future. And I'm, I'm eventually going to do something I think that is elevated but more accessible. And I think that's important. Like I want to cook for people, in my income bracket, right? You know, like I want everyone to be able to have a good time and an elevated experience. So um, that's kind of looming in the future. Um, and we have another few projects that we're currently working on now that um, are kind of exciting as well. Anything you can share? Is it all top secret still? Um, one is not quite, it's almost there, so I can't quite talk about okay. that one. Um, but we are partnering. Staying in Brooklyn? Uh, Greenpoint. Okay, cool. And then we're um, we're consulting and managing with, uh, doing a management contract with the Hoxton uh, Hotel Group in LA. So we're, um, we're working on all the concepts for their restaurants in that hotel, which is kind of fun. What's the target date for that? Um, years away or no is it it's like it's maybe it's the fall this year cool um we'll see how it goes but it's it seems like we're we're on track there um so we have a lot of kind of cool ideas working for that um that's exciting um the you know the excitement of you know messing around with la produce and that like kind of awesome seasonality and the quality of produce that's out there is pretty exciting the stuff you get year round right? in la that yeah. you just can't really get here <laughs> so that's exciting uh, pretty jealous yeah. always when you stroll around those la farmers markets and you're like oh cool the strawberries are this good 12 months out of here <laughs> uh what have you you're two and a half years in what what if if you have an ability to define your leadership style sure. at Sunday in Brooklyn. Has it changed a lot yeah. from Matera? Oh my God, yeah. What is it? And, uh, and how? What are you? What do you think you're like now? <laughs> <laughs> so at, at Matera, I, I had to learn 
on the on the spot how to be a manager and how to be a leader. So I fussed around with a couple of different styles um, from, hey, like we should all be friends and like keep it like a really good cohesive thing into that's not really working. So um, I, I kind of drew a couple of inspired, you know, experiences from Victoria, my old sous chef, uh, Matt, you know, like for me, I'm I'm really intense about standards and what I perceive as um, the right way to do something. Um, so for me, I always draw a line in the sand and I say, hey, listen, like, I'm going to give you the knowledge to do your job well. And if I don't, I'm going to continue to give that knowledge to you do. But if I know you know and you still intentionally make a mistake and, and you're lazy about it, for me, you cross the line. And I always make sure that line is very, very clear. Um, so I'm super intense about that. So I can be very intense and I can be, especially at a terror, I was a little bit over, a little bit too much, right? Um, that was a different environment with a different kind of, you know, workforce with a different intention. We were trying to be the, one of the best restaurants in the world. So when you made a mistake, it was offensive to me. So I let you know about it, you know, um, casual kitchen, um, ton of green cooks. Um, I was fortunate enough to, again, take some of my sous chefs from Atera. They followed me over, which was great. Um, so I already had guys with the standard, but we had to approach it differently. So you know, I think the new cook that's coming out of school nowadays isn't like how it was when we kind of came up. Like we were cool to take a verbal beating. Um, I was, I was like, if I made a mistake and chef found out and he was pissed, I was, I was cool with that. Like you want to verbally assault me, I'll take that. Mm -hmm. But now it's, I think it's different. Um, the way that the new generation kind of takes an information, how, what they want to achieve so fast. Um, you have to kind of be, you have to be different about it. And I think for me, it's more about um, mentoring and teaching and inspiring them to, to want it themselves. So giving them, you know, chefs that inspire me books to read. I'm like, Hey, go read this, do that. You know, inspire them to want that perfection and want that standard on their own. Um, has really done me for me as a manager wonders, like they come in inspired to do it. Not, Hey, why the hell are you doing that wrong? What's wrong with you? Like you're fucking retarded. Like it's not that anymore. It's like, Hey, did you read that book? How awesome was that about how he, he dealt with artichokes in, in this certain time of the year, right? Like, that was pretty cool, yeah? And like, yeah, I want to do that. I'm like, let's do it. You know, like, I inspire people to be, I want, I want the kitchen to be all inclusive. I want everyone to have ideas, and I want them to add to the menu, and I want them to feel confident in themselves. So it's really about building confidence and structure and, and technique for them. So for me, I always remembered um, when you berate someone in service, you can't expect them to do a better job if you continuously berate them. They just go down so hard. They won't even be able to spell their name or tie their shoe at one point. Like I remember feeling that way. Um, if someone has a hard service and you get in their ear and you say, hey, listen, like, let it go. You're a fucking good cook. Like, you're going to get through this. And you inspire them to get through that moment. They become confident again. And then they start cooking better. So positive reinforcement is, is super important. Um, and, and, and just teaching them and giving them knowledge, I think, inspires them to want that standard. So that is, that's my approach now. What's most satisfying to you about Sundays in Brooklyn? What makes you get up in the morning and keeps you coming back day after day to your restaurant? You know, it's like a relentless, challenging restaurant. Kitchen's kind of old, everything's falling apart. You know, my sous chefs are like, trying to keep control of operations, kind of trying to keep the train on the tracks and it's always busy. We never close. It's not even like time to breathe. And, you know, it's inspiring to watch how hard they work and how dedicated they are to keeping everything together. Um, their, their ability to problem solve the cooks doing a nine and a half hour freaking brunch shift. Like no one likes that, you know, and they're just sitting there just like busting through it. And I'm like, that's amazing. You know, they're, they're, 
their integrity, their, their like will to like push through. It's like, it's really inspiring. And to be honest with you, like, you know, with my business partners and I, and you know, this is our first restaurant on our own. It's like really doing well. And like, that's not like a common thing that happens in New York. Usually New York eats you up and spits you out. So I feel very proud that we have a restaurant that is doing very well. It's thriving. People enjoy coming to our restaurant. You know, um, that's, I think that's an achievement. You know, I feel, I feel really proud that we have a, a, a pretty successful restaurant so far in New York. It's, you know, it's hard to do that. Um, that's inspiring. Jamie, thanks so much for being here and sharing a little bit about your story and uh, where you started and and now where you are at your own spot at Sundays in Brooklyn. Uh, tell people where they can find the restaurant. Where is it located and what's the website? Yeah, we're at 348 Wythe Avenue. Um, the website is sundayinbrooklyn.com. Uh, yeah, we're in uh, South Williamsburg, um, right around the block from the Domino uh, Sugar Factory. Cool. Congrats on everything two and a half years in and also all the new projects. Maybe we'll have you come back in a a year or two when you can share a little bit more about (laughs) some of those top secret projects. Everyone, thanks for listening. We'll have new episodes uh, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.